you know, I'm, I'm not a statistician, but anecdotally, uh, in my day, um, there weren't nearly as many amazing pro athletes as there are today. The fields are rich and thick mm -hmm. and, and um, really, really uh, top-notch on both the women's and men's side. But I'll tell you this, um, the best of the best runners from my day, I'd put any of them shoulder to shoulder with the, with the best runners today. Women, men, no choice about that. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a former pro triathlete from way back in the day. Not to date him too much, but he's going to tell us a lot about how the sport has changed over time. Currently... He's the executive director and race director for Run Ottawa, um, which is going to tell us a little bit about that for us Americans who may not know much about our northern neighbors. He's also the director at the Canadian Endurance Sports Alliance. In a previous life, he owned uh, a retail specialty bike shop from 2002 to 2019. He's been an endurance sport coach for about 25 years now. And again, in a previous life, sold in 2019, but he owned a regional triathlon event business Welcome to the show, Ian Fraser. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me. That's a, a wonderful introduction. I've kind of, uh, yeah, and, and I don't know what else I do with the other hour in the day most times, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get all of it done, and then I'm like, okay, I've got an hour to myself. Now what do I do? <laughs> that's, that's a question I find myself uh, asking a lot of time. I mean, I have my own hobbies, but like um, from before we got going, I mentioned him. Um, Aki Kwakor. I, I, I talked to him last week on the podcast and then we, we met again this morning uh, to talk business because um, that's kind of what he does. And, you know, we're talking like lifestyle design and it's a, it's a big thing nowadays. Figure out, you know, what do you want to do? How big do you want to make your business? How, you know, it should suit you and all those kind of things. And he was like, well, if you didn't do any business right now, what would you do with your time? And I went, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. I think, you know, um, the endurance sport world, uh, triathlon, running, cycling, you know, making a living within that ecosystem um, can be challenging, right? Uh, it can also be really rewarding. And if you choose one path, it can open up a whole bunch of doors to do something else, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, all of the things on, on, on my bio are kind of all interrelated. And I all, I got to those places because of, you know, where I started arguably, you know, more than two decades ago. So, you know, I think if you're a doer um, and I'm not suggesting I'm a particularly good doer, but, but I am a doer, right. Um, you're always open to ideas and things. And somebody says, well, you know, here's an opportunity to try this. I'm like, sure, I'll give that, I'll give that a go. And, and to your point, I think it's a, it's a great question. If somebody asked me if I didn't have to do any of the things that I've done or that I'm currently doing, what would I do? And, and I have no, no answer to that question. I just, I don't know. I, I really love what I've done. I love what I currently do. I really love what I currently do. So that question is just, a, that's a, yeah, it's a bit elusive, I think. Yeah, I, you know, I have plenty of hobbies from like growing up. So I know that's kind of where, where I got to with AK in that conversation. I was like, well... I guess I'd spend more time writing music and I, you know, maybe 
you know, take drawing back up again or get back into silversmithing or like there are things I could do, but just, you know, it, right off the bat, I'm like, if, if it was literally today, I'm like, well, I don't have the infrastructure to do all those. Like, I don't have a jewelry bench. I don't, you know, like, so it, I'm sure I could find some hobbies. Love that. Oh, I do all kinds of stuff. That's amazing. <laughs> I do all Super kinds of cool. stuff. Yeah. So, you know, there are so many, I, I always said, especially growing up, I was like, I always felt like I hope I'm reincarnated because there's so many things to do in life. There's simply yeah. not enough life to do them. It's um, so true. And, and it's a shame that you have to niche down. Um, so obviously that's a bit of a tangent, but. Um, no, but I think it's, it, it's true, you know, and I think um, a natural curiosity ends up informing a road that you're going to take. So a passion, a hobby, um, it starts to inform a bunch of decisions that I don't think we're ever fully conscious of, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think on some visceral level, we think about some of those choices and the, and the places they take us, but you just day to day, you know, life is full of, full of an addition of micro choices, right. micro decisions that you make, um, which, which create the sort of canvas that you paint your life on. And I think in, in so many ways, um, if, if you're curious, if you like to do things, if you like to, I mean, be creative. And I, and I think, um, uh, high performance athletics, there's such a huge degree of creativity there that I think a lot of people don't consider. Um, then it, again, it takes you, it takes you down a road. I think within that, and, and as you mentioned, like making a living from doing the things you love that's such I think it's kind of a difficult conversation because I I remember I'll, I'll take us back uh, I was 12 years old and I was in Sunday school and I remember them asking us uh, would you rather do a job that you love for less money or a job that you don't really like but makes a lot of money my first question is why do I have to choose between those can't I do both <laughs> but also like that seems like the dichotomy, right? Like that's the general idea is that like, if you're going to do what you love, then, you know, you may be like a starving artist. And having spoken to, I can't, I don't know why I'm not thinking of her name, but former British pro triathlete, she's actually a, a working artist now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being an actual working artist is a tough gig. Being a working creative is a very tough gig. And it can uh, burn you out from the thing that you love. So it's like, I don't know there's any one prescribed path, right? Where right. you just say, well, if you love it, then pursue it and make, make a living out of it. Because that could make you hate it. But then at, at the same time, if you're just like, well, go into accounting, even though you hate numbers and do your art on the side, you could hate that too. And each presents its own pros and cons and challenges, but it, it's just, it's interesting how people discern what their path is. You know, in your case, actually going down the path, uh, you know, racing professionally for, for a while, having your own race series, having the shop, like making those decisions, there's, I'm guessing there was a leaping off point where you probably had opportunities to 
do other things that weren't necessarily race related. But I did a you, couple of those things, right? So, yeah, but you, right, yeah, you made the leap. Yep. And I think you know it's it's interesting. Like I go I I go back a little bit to the days when I raced, and so I I raced sort of essentially from 1992 to about 1997. And I was a, a solid middle of the pack pro. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had certain strengths and lots of weaknesses. I was a terrible swimmer. I came to swimming uh, really as a 21 year old. Um, I, I couldn't swim a length of a pool until I was 21. Um, I came to the sport from a running background. So that was always uh, something that served me incredibly well. I became a decent cyclist towards the, towards the end of that process. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of money. Um, there was some. Uh, so I always had to support myself with work. So, you mm-hmm. know, I worked in restaurants and, you know, had done that for seasonally for, you know, to most of my racing career. And so when I actually stopped racing uh, professionally, I had an opportunity to go into the restaurant business. And I did. Uh, I owned a restaurant for about two years and it was um, a horrific experience, <laughs> but it was the, the most incredible experience I'd ever had. Right. You know, I mean, I'd Kind of university. I have a I have a bachelor's degree in economics, um, but that, that was my first real um, journey into business, and it cost me probably about as much as a really good MBA, uh, and I feel like I, I I learned so much more from that process, and so I I knew at kind of that point I kind of again consciously subconsciously, I always want to work for myself, I. I could apply so many of the lessons that I'd learned in the restaurant business, which was a business that was not for me, but I could apply so many of those lessons to something else that I felt creative about. I'd already started to do a little coaching, um, going back probably to my final years of racing. You know how that is, right? You know, people want to pick your brain. And so I had four or five clients at that time. I had a run group and uh, that kind of stuff. And so that all just sort of started to come together. Okay. Well, I'll start a coaching business. Right. And so, and, and then, you know, you start going down that road. Um, but it's interesting, like, you know, as that, you know, taking the path that you might follow, I just think a lot of people don't go for a walk. You know, you, you, you got to start walking down some pathways before you can make decisions. And some people, um, are entirely comfortable not going for a walk. Um, and that's okay. But I think some people, would love to go for a walk, but maybe you're too afraid to go and, and take those first steps. That's, uh, I mean, what's the, the phrase? It's a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Like mm-hmm. it, it's cliche, I guess, if you, anytime you bring up quotes, it's like, oh, there's another, it's <laughs> another poster to hang on my wall. <laughs> but there's, I mean, they're, they're, they hang around because there's some truisms to them. And Absolutely. I think I mean, we're both entrepreneurs. So, I mean, this sentiment is probably not unfamiliar to you. It's like, have your, your goal, your idea, but don't be so stuck on this is the only route to get there, you know, Very because, true. because things come up, you know, opportunities come up, opportunities close, ideas arise. So it's like, you come up with the idea where you say, like, say you're a little kid, let's go way back. And you're like, I want to be a professional athlete. Maybe at the time, like you're really into football, American football. And you're like, I want to be a quarterback, but you have no, like, no matter how hard you work, your hand-eye coordination just sucks. Like you're probably not going to be a quarterback. <laughs> yeah. 
but you know, maybe you're really, really good at like foot eye coordination. So then you go play football or soccer instead, like, and you can become a pro in that. Like it, I'm, I'm more a fan of having these, I'll call them general goals. You know, I want to, I want to make a million bucks or I, I want, you know, I want to be a pro athlete or, or I want to go to the Olympics or whatever it is. And then saying, okay, what's an avenue that can get me there? Let's start working on that. And then also having the right people to, to guide you to say, maybe this other avenue is a, a better choice for you to accomplish this goal. Yeah, I think, I think that's really true. Like you can't go places without, um, and again, cliched, but mentors, role models, you know, I don't think of those people in that necessarily named role uh, right. every day, but there are people that you look up to and there's, there are people that you admire and there are people that you think, wow, um, I'd like to emulate some of the, the, the traits that I see. And I think, you know, you're an incredible person. You've been successful, you've been resilient. Uh, you've been kicked around a little bit, um, but you know you don't wear that on the outside. And I think those were the kinds of people um, that I really looked up to. Certainly, athletically as well. You know, I I found um, you know my years racing as a pro triathlete to be a very polarizing experience. I created some of the you know the longest lasting friendships I've had with anybody, and I found a portion of that community, about half of it, even at that pro level to be so welcoming and so warm and the other half to be savagely evil, you know? And I just thought like, it's just, there's no middle ground. You know, you go to a race, you hit the road and you travel for a couple months. And it's like, you gravitate to those five, six, seven people that see the world maybe in the same way that, that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it really matters where they come from, whether they come from Europe or the United States or Canada or Asia, you know, there's a, there's a zeitgeist, I think, among among certain athletes that they behave and, and think and feel a certain way. Um, and it's pretty obvious when you're in that in that culture and in that ecosystem, you can see who those people are that you wouldn't want to spend a minute with in a room alone or, yeah. or at all, right? And so, you, you know, to your point, those are some of those people who've been around a little longer were people that I looked up to, people that I, um, you know, felt kinship with and and again, you know, that starts, you know, looking at their lives, what they've done before, what they've done afterwards. And I always tended to appreciate people that liked other things other than triathlon at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, as an athlete, you live and you breathe it. And I, I get that you have to do that. And maybe that's why I was a, a middle of the packer because I, I mean, certainly lived and breathed it in my, in my moving moments. But I liked other things. I liked the arts. I liked film. I liked music. Um, I liked, yeah, I was like, as the man with a thousand albums right. and guitars behind him. Yeah, and and I like to read, and I, I like literature. I like all of those things, and you know, um, I like to talk to people when you're alone on the road. Prior to, uh, I don't even know where my phone is, but you know, prior to having a smart device to bury your face, and you have to talk to some people. You have to do some stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and so when you're on the road and you're like, Hey, I want to go see this film. And you know, you know, that half the people you race with would never want to go see this film, but you know, you know, two or three guys or a couple of women to be like, yeah, I'd love to see that film. You know, I've been wanting to see it. So, and, and, you know, racing again in, in just prior to, you know, the, the start of the real information age, 
was also somewhat challenging as well. You know, we didn't have some of the tools that athletes have today to, you know, to, to boost their income. You know, there's, there's no social media back then or anything right. like that. You know, we, we used to get paid sponsorship dollars on printed photographs of our stuff with, you know, sponsors logos on them. You'd get a 50 buck impression from power bar. Every time you were seen in a regional newspaper, national television, you'd get a 150 bucks an impression. Right. So, and we used to, you know, we used to sit down in front of our VCRs and cobble all this stuff together. And, you know, we'd have somebody that we knew in town, who would put a, a you know, a, a tape reel together of yeah. all of these stitched up. We'd have to send them off to our sponsors. You know, you'd send it to power bar and go, you know, I've got 112 of these things here, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'd send you a check, I don't know, eight months later or something. So yeah. it was different, you know, that sort of access to information. And, and I think, I don't think it's easier to be an athlete now. I think like a lot of things in life, technology was supposed to, uh, wasn't it supposed to see us working like two hours a day um, and having four months off back in the age of the Jetsons and it was supposed right. to get it easier. Um, I'm not going to suggest that it makes life any easier. I think it opens more choices to today's athlete on how they market themselves. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, a learning curve on, on equipment choices. Um, you know, we had to wait for printed magazines or studies. Uh, you, you think of the, the, the availability of information on, on human physiology, for example, you know, yeah. you can read yourself up in two days on stuff that it would have taken us, uh, four years of a university degree to learn. So yeah, it's interesting in that regard. Well, in, in, in that regard, like it's, it's nice that the information is available, but then, you know, the misinformation is just <laughs> as available and yeah. <laughs> discerning between the two is tough as well as just making sure you've actually understood the topic. Even if you have the, you know, here, I'll date myself here, the Encyclopedia Britannica of like information, like it's, this is the, the God's honest truth making sure that you've comprehended the information that you're reading and how it pertains to your situation. Right. That's a different skill set than simply going, well, inside the calf, there's the gastronemius. And then there's all like, <laughs> that's there's rote memorization versus like understanding functional anatomy and, and how it applies to your sport is a different level. So it's like, it's great. We've got it and we've got the ability to get to it. And, you know, I, I know I can learn about so many things and have access to so many p things. And like this podcast is a good example of like being able to have interviews with experts in so many different fields and, and have conversations with them and, and make it freely available to anybody that wants to listen. Like, you know, I've talked to pros, former pros, Olympians, like high level academic researcher. It just, the the ability to get to that knowledge is it's just at your fingertips now um but along with that comes the responsibility and i think that's the the difficult part is is knowing how to handle the information rather than being able to get to it, it and and i think that's a really good point and, and maybe like i'll just come forward to today so you know, um, I'm the executive director of, of, of a not-for-profit organization called Run Ottawa. And so um, for some context, we're the, we, we produce uh, and put on the largest running events in Canada. 
Um, we've had a maximum, I think, um, in our better years, we were around 46,000 uh, participants. It's a two-day um, event. Uh, and by, you know, whatever statistical analysis you look at, we're either, we would either be the 11th or 16th largest running event in North America based on those numbers. So uh, Ottawa is a city of a million people, capital of Canada, good sized city. Absolutely. I'm not biased at all, but it's an incredibly beautiful place. We also do, as an organization, we do operations and logistics for another large event called the Canada Army Run. It would be our sort of equivalent of the Marine Corps. So it's a 25,000-ish person event. And we do about 12 other running events throughout the year as well. Smaller events, they're all, mm -hmm. you know, 1,000, 2,000 participants, that sort of thing. And, you know, the, the, the world of event production uh, is very different, right? So if you, if you put on a triathlon or, or a running race uh, in 1985, your soul goal would be to make sure that that course was amazing. So it was measured accurately. You had some kind of access to timing that people could could view those results in some kind of way. Um, and you know, you wanted to make sure that the Gatorade wasn't warm at the aid stations and you had enough Dixie cups and, and away you go, right? And so we know, you know, you and I know this and your listeners know this and your watchers know this, you know, that's not the state, the current state of endurance sport uh, event production. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my role in title is executive director and race director. Those are two hugely different things, right? You know, a race director is barricades, cones, making sure um, banners are up, making sure all the infrastructure is there, you know, making sure that registration is running smoothly, kit pickup, all that sort of thing. But the role that I'm passionate about and the one that, that I was really brought on to do is this idea of an executive director to take our event and continue down the path to turn it into the most participant rich experience event that you could ever do. Um, and the age of technology has brought that participant to us. They want something more than that. They want experiences at Race Expo that are just not me lining up like a, like a cattle to pick up my bag with a bunch of things stuffed into it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm filed out the back through, you know, uh, a loading dock door and, and I wake up tomorrow morning and I do my 10K marathon, half marathon, whatever. So <laughs> I think there's a huge responsibility with that technology, but it also allows us to do some amazing things, right? And, and allows us in these incremental moves to make that experience something where you uh, in Missouri uh, would love to come up and do our event. You know, I would love to come and do something in your neck of the woods that I've seen that might be amazing. And so we also have the ability to see those things, hear the feedback, look at that. And that's a, a big responsibility as an events organizer. And it's also a great opportunity as well. I, in some ways, I, I feel like it's almost a shame that it can't be just as simple as like, Oh yeah. We set, up, we, we set up the cones, like the race, the course is accurate. And just, and it's, but I, I get it. I, I get it well, in part. Cause like people want something to do and it's like, you do this race and then it's over. But also because I've never really had to be a spectator, generally speaking for very few times have I been just a spectator. Most of the races I go to, I am racing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm actively participating in the event. I'm not sitting on the sidelines. So it, it does make it, I can see even from that standpoint, like it makes it a whole event for both the person racing and the people that are coming. It's like, okay, cool. You raced. And then now we can watch this 
you know, Cheryl Crow's here or what, like whoever musical guest is here and they're going to perform and, and we've got, you know, whatever events going into the whole thing. And, you know, maybe here in town and be like, uh, Oklahoma Joe's or I guess it's Kansas city Joe's now is catering barbecue. And like, there, there's a whole thing going on instead of just this singular race and it's over. Well, uh, yeah. And also the participants expectations are, um, they, you know, throughout COVID throughout the challenging time that we've had in the endurance sport world. And we've had perhaps arguably, uh, and I know this from conversations I've had with my, my peers and colleagues in the United States and Canada, we've had a really difficult time in Canada, um, putting on any in-person events. Um, we, we really haven't, there hasn't been anything that you would consider a large scale in-person endurance sport event in Canada since prior to March, 2020, mm -hmm. but you really understand the power of what you do here. And if people think that the endurance sport world is dying or alive or something like that, they only need to think about the comments, the concerns, the passions that lay around an event ticket that they've purchased that might be 69 or $79 and, and how passionate they feel about that event not going off or the t-shirt being not right or the metal not being exactly right. I mean, I can't go to a movie and have some popcorn and go see a film and, and spend much less than 69 bucks, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about the, the, the emotional value, um, not only the physical value, but the emotional value that, that, that we as event organizers bring to people's lives, um, it's, it's a really interesting value proposition. And in no way am I suggesting that, that participants are ungrateful or that their concerns are not valid. They're 100% valid, but it just blows me away, you know, going back to this entrepreneur um, position, you know, that and, and, and place that I have in my mind and my heart. It's like, you know, I can show you 15 different $69 items that, um, you know, some are worthless to people and some, you know, have a value that's uh, 10 times that amount, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we operate and, and we participate in a really unique environment and something that is, is so special um, to so many people in their lives that tapping into that to make that even better for them and to understand why it's that way and do more of the things that, that resonate in that manner, um, that's a never ending job for us. And certainly for me, that's, that, that happily keeps me up at night. You know, I, I think, Part of that, which goes back to even my own comment about uh, can't it just just be a race? Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I think that it because it speaks to people' identity, right? Like it's mm -hmm. it isn't just an event. Like this is part of who I am, and this this culture and the whole thing around the event and like a celebration of the thing that I do that's a part of me. And why I say that that has to go back to. Um, me saying can't it just be the race is well one in part because i'm square and lame but also like i don't you know I, i'm mostly happy to just show up do the race and go home like i don't personally care about the rest of it just as long as i had a good day so which isn't to be like ungrateful all the work that you do <laughs> <laughs> no, I get but that. It's just like that speaks to my own identity 
versus like you know having the, the whole big to do about it. But and, Jesse, think think of think of the little pieces here. So right, the amazing stuff that you do and the content that you produce. I throw that on my in my earbuds when I go for a run. Okay. And the run is a, is, is um, a preparation for an event that I'm doing in two, in two months. And so now those three pieces are connected, you, me, and this event. Right. And so, you know, all of these little tumbling dice that fall into the process and process is so important, right? And even if your takeaway experience and you know, if you come to one, and I'm just using you as an example, but like, no, no, if you come to, if you come to our event and you don't love all of the participant experience around you, you just want the course, it's there for you. Right. You, you did have a preparation phase. You did have a, a journey to get there and it's filled with all kinds of Jesse's and Ian's and all kinds of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like, those are the multipliers for us as entrepreneurs in the endurance sports space is, is finding those great connections. Um, you know, I'm going to go home after my run and tell my wife what I heard on your podcast that I was listening to. She's going to tell two friends and, and it's, it's, it, it, you get, you get momentum, you get uh, connectivity. And I think that, that around the information piece is something we didn't have in 1985. Right. You know, I remember this hilarious story. So it's going back to the mid seventies. Um, and there was a, a famous distance runner, uh, Lassie Viren, you know, Finnish, Finnish 5,000, 10,000 meter runner. Mm -hmm. And so he was, uh, you know, he had typical sort of Scandinavian dry humor. And so he won, I don't know, a bunch of gold medals in 72 and 76, I think. And I remember this because the Olympics were in Montreal in 76, yep. you know, he's interviewed afterwards and he's asked, you know, what's your secret Lassie, you know? It just, you know, how do you, are you so good in, in multiple distance events without recovering? He said, well, you know, I take reindeer shit and I, I massage it into my legs and I find that to be an amazing recovery tool. And he does this like deadpan and straight face, right? And so, you know, there's a half a generation of runners for a year and a half that are trying to source out reindeer shit so that they can, you know, do the same thing. But, you know, there's no, there's no real, um, uh, truth seekers here in, in his comments, right. because those, you know, um, they didn't exist back then. So I think like, wow, that's like so, the so low tech dissemination of information. And uh, it was a, it was a technique that endured about, you know, 99% longer than it should have. So that's kind of funny. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I feel like now if he had done that, it, and it blew up, I, I almost can guarantee you that like, somebody would have like, partnered with him to make a gag gift where you could actually <laughs> buy it. I can yeah. almost guarantee it. Be like, here it is. It's like, <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> 995. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and that's because of how fast things work now. Right. Exactly. So, somebody would have grabbed somebody with a reindeer farm would have been like, I'm in like, <laughs> yep. He would have tweeted it out seven minutes later. Um, and some other guy is, you know, I'll come pick up four tons and, you know, the products in your hands yeah. uh, in a week um, yeah, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, uh, I find that so funny, but it is, it's, you know, on a serious note, it's a really, um, it's really potent. Uh, information is so potent, so important. Yeah. You so much good. 
I think, you know, we also, um, we have at, at our signature event, which is Tamarack Ottawa Race Weekend, it's our, our big one, you know, things, things there like our ability to put, we put on a virtual event this year, obviously, because mm -hmm. of COVID, and we put 8,000 participants in our virtual event. Through a targeted program called our Scotiabank Charity Challenge, we raised mm, almost a million dollars in charity donations this year for yeah. 52 different charities. Again, how would you have done that in 1985? You just would have never done that, right? Like the, the power to be able to do that, the platform, the infrastructure. So even in that piece, like all the good stuff that you could potentially do, it's just so mind boggling. Yeah, it, it does make me wonder though, like I think you're on uh, the other podcast, the Consummate Athlete podcast, you're talking about like, you know, the changes, you're talking about like the the low tuck wearing your like underwear band for the, for the <laughs> right <laughs> you know just the, the low tech to high tech changes of the sport and i, I wonder you know because you've seen it change and, and i've asked um i don't know if you're familiar with simon ward mm -hmm. he's a british triathlete yeah. uh, for a number of years i spoke with him back on episode 73 and we talked about you know changes over the years and he's talking about paper hand timing and paper timing when he got yeah. started and I wonder how you feel about like, is the heart of the sport still alive? Is it, is it just different? Like, because obviously it's not the same thing in some sense, but it is still swimming and biking and running and there's still people trying to win and there's more people doing it. So I always wonder like how the people that have seen the changes feel about where it was versus where it is now and if it still feels like like you know the the heart of triathlon is strong oh that's a, such a great question jesse and absolutely the heart is strong um you know the things that you're talking about are are i consider kind of like the trappings of the sport right mm -hmm. oh okay bike technology um changed significantly um, uh, you know, running shoe check technology recently has, has changed significantly, but, um, the, the way that athletes, uh, approach a competitive event, um, that's DNA driven that's inside all of them. And I watch enough, uh, triathlon. I consume a lot of triathlon, uh, in person, uh, as a spectator. Um, I watch it, uh, you know, I watch all the IT world. WTS races and I, I consume it, right? You know, full disclosure, um, she's much younger than me, but my, my wife is, uh, is uh, an up and coming professional triathlete. She's 22 years younger than me. And so I live vicariously through her. But what I do know is that all the things that go on in her world are all the same things that I experienced mm -hmm. in every way, shape and form. And like that, that desire, that drive, that nervousness at the start line, you know, I love nothing better than to watch a WTS race and see everybody lined up on the pontoon and ready to dive in. And it's like, I've, I've been there. I know what that feels like. And mm -hmm. it feels the same, I'm sure for them as it did for me. Um, same thing when you're, you know, waiting for the gun to go in a, in a 70.3 race. I know that feeling. So those, those things haven't changed. The heart of the sport is exactly the same. You know, I've lived through, um, perhaps the most overwhelmingly uh, important bicycle technology revolution that Cervelo brought to uh, brought to the to the sport. So you know, I was fortunate enough to be actually the first professional triathlete ever to win an event on a Cervelo bicycle. Um, I went to to university um, with Phil White, 
one of the founders and I knew Phil before he ever designed his first bicycle or even really knew what a bicycle was. So, you know, I've seen that technology, which really supercharged um, what we've done. Um, and, and, you know, there have been, I would say a lot of the technology in, in the bike world that we see now has been marginal and incremental and slow and steady. Mm -hmm. I think from a material standpoint, um, we've been about as, um, as good as we can be probably for nearly a decade now. Um, aerodynamic design, we're probably about as good as we've ever been. And, and you know, I think um, wheel technology's changed a little bit. Um, Drivetrain stuff has changed a bit. Um, but, you know, I, th I think human physiology has, has driven some of the, the incredible advances we've seen on the bike. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a statistician, but anecdotally, uh, in my day, um, there weren't nearly as many amazing pro athletes as there are today. The fields are rich and thick mm -hmm. and, and um, really, really uh, top notch on both the women's and men's side. But I'll tell you this, um, the best of the best runners from my day, I'd put any of them shoulder to shoulder with the, with the best runners today. Women, men, no choice about that. I still would say that that Mark Allen's run in Kona, even though he doesn't currently hold the, the, the course record, he, he ran that, that run on, I would, I would go down, you know, to the death in an arm wrestle on a, on a, on the more difficult run course. Um, and you know, his, his giving up that record by, I'm not, I, again, I'm not sure, but it's not by a lot, you know, mm -hmm. less than a minute, maybe. Um, if you put that run on that day on the course that, uh, that the current record holder has, Mark Allen would have won. So, you know, I would put some of the best bike riders and Jeff Devlin's, um, Peter Reed's of their day, Jurgen Zach's on today's technology. They'll ride with Lionel. They'll ride with everybody else. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, that part of the technology piece has changed. Um, but, but an athlete is still an athlete. I think, you know, inside everybody's brain. Um, they want to find a way to win. They want to find a way to be the best they possibly can. And I think that, yeah, the heart is absolutely still there. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, hundred percent. I think what's tough is the changes in technology and then trying to compare, like, I mean, we have the whole, um, like the Nike vapor fly and all mm -hmm. the carbon plate technology and shoes going on. And it's like all these running, you know, records are getting broken. And then, you're like, hey, let's go back. It's like, okay, well, if we put, you know, if we put pre in those shoes and he's running versus, you know, the top names today, like, is he as fast? It's just, it's an impossible debate to have because you're, you're right. looking at just moments captured in time, but in thinking about the Ironman in particular, uh, you know, with the bike, well, if you're off the bike sooner, you're going to have fresher legs. That's like, a great point. Like that's, that's an, like it's, that's an easy one. I mean, you say, okay, I'm going to give you a 30 pound bike to go do this course on, or I'm going to give you a 10 pound bike. That's way more aerodynamic and you're going to finish a significant time faster. Well, that's effort you didn't have to put in. Now you got fresher legs to run. So that it's a, it's, you're, you're going to split hairs. Maybe that's what makes for a great, sports debate is like because you can't <laughs> you can't really solve it i mean yeah maybe you can maybe there's some way to to go well you know if it if it was this and that and it but then there's ultimately the 
the spirit of the athlete, right? And you're in, you're in Mark Allen's corner. And I don't know that I have a pretty good one, but we'll say, let's just say like, I'm a big Cody Beals fan. And I, I think he's, you know, yeah. he's Cody's the awesome. number, right. Yeah, <laughs> like he's number one or whatever. Like, yeah. and I'm like, well, he could have beat Mark Allen. And this, these are my reasons why And <laughs> it's like, okay, but can, can, you know, just, can we get it to a demonstrable point in, in, in I don't know that you can in part because even from something as small as large as it is small, the weather, I mean, you look at race results and it's like, you have to be careful about just like looking at a race sheet and going, Oh, Oh man. Like I know I've looked at race sheets and like my fastest, my fastest Olympic distance was only like 205, 206. And really it should have been faster on the day that I did it, but the course was, blistering hot so i it didn't finish any faster but um you know you there have been courses where it's like i looked at the results and i'm like oh i know where i am and oh i should be top five it's like yeah but those results last year it was 95 out and somehow there was a monsoon at the same time and like there's all these you know mitigating circumstances that slowed everybody down and you have no idea about that so I think that gets lost too. It's like, we're not, we're not factoring in just how humid was it? How hot was it? Were there any cloud cover? Was there just even from that standpoint, it it makes this like impossible debate because the same person on the same course with the same equipment on from today to tomorrow could be two completely different performances just because the weather didn't cooperate with them or, they got like a little bit of food poisoning or, you know, like <laughs> there's all these just tiny little minutia that goes into all of it that adds up. But I think you can, you can make this, and I firmly believe this, you can make the, you can only say this because I think, you know, going down that comparison hole is, is um, a, 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 what's the cliche? A fool's errand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, I think what you can say about our sport is this. Um, you can say, only a few things. You can say one, um, the technology is better today than it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Two, um, where the debate I would get in with you would be maybe, uh, or somebody would be that I'm not sure from um, uh, a training and physiology standpoint whether today's athletes are better trained than they were 25 years ago. I think there's a marginal difference there, and I think that that difference speaks to recovery. Uh, injury prevention. I think um, some of those pieces are in play. But aside from those those two things, um, the obvious answer is a, a great athlete. Those things being equal, um, whether it's uh, you know 1985 or 95 or today, um, they would go head to head with each other, and it would be a, gr- a great race. And I think the more interesting conversations around pro triathletes and athletes general is is what makes a winner and you know mm-hmm. uh the soup that makes a winner and that you know and i've often said that you know a, a, a true winner in sport is somebody who's able to manage their inadequacies and the things that they're not particularly good at as opposed to leveraging the things that they're really good at right and i think um that's true in the sport of triathlon some of the the, the great champions of the sport have been really good at, at limiting their losses in the things that they're not particularly good at and, and leveraging that. And I think that's that's fascinating because when you see them try to perform outside of that model, that's when you go, oh, that person's mm-hmm. not gonna have a good day 
or this person's going to have an amazing day, you know? And so mm -hmm. you, you know, and I, again, I'll just sort of some stuff that I'm familiar with, you know, I've, over the years I've, I've, you know, I rode and I, I ran and spent a fair bit of time with Peter Reed. And I thought, you know, I was long retired by the time he was winning his back-to-back -back Konas, but I knew, you know, Peter never set the bike course record at Kona ever, but I knew that if he, if that was a goal of his, he would have done it. But, you know, he felt early on that maybe he wasn't the best runner in the field, but the, but the way to protect against that was to make sure that when he came off the bike, he'd used, you know, a significant portion of energy less than his competitors had so that, you know, he could leverage the, the skill that he did have on the run without being on the limit when he got to the bike. And I, he mm -hmm. was always successful and analytical around that and truly understood the things that he was exceptional at. Um, and also using those exceptional skills to manage the things that he had to be somewhat careful with. And so you can see that, um, you can see that in just about any champion in the, in the sport of triathlon or in the world of running as well. I think it's which is what put a bike race on now, you know, and you know, uh, we, we consume so much bike racing here. So, you know, there's, mm -hmm. it's been so awesome. And it's just like, you know, you know that that person is not going to win a three up sprint uh, at the end of a stage in, in the tour. So you know that they've got to try something else to get to the finish line that, that's going to deliver them there so that they don't have to put themselves in that situation. So I think those are really, those are the fun conversations to have. And those are the fun ones when you're watching an event where you're sitting there with your buddies or whatever, and you're going, he's going to win or she's going to win. No, 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 it's not going to happen because this just happened, you know? So I think I love doing that stuff. I think it's super fun. You're naming like the things that have changed. I think one, this is my opinion. We'll see whether you agree or not. One thing you didn't name that, that is different. And I think plays to possibly the illusion that people are so much faster now is that the development pipelines are in place to, to get more people. Because like, think about, point. and I, I was a part of this, but partly, partly because I forced my way in, not because I was recruited. And I always try to make that caveat, but I had the, <laughs> I had the, I had the fortune of um, hanging out with some of the really fast guys and girls with the USA Triathlon's Collegiate Recruitment Program, who at the time was headed by Barb Lindquist. Yep. And, uh, you know, Barb recruited Gwen Jorgensen. Like she didn't originally really kind of want to come to triathlon, but she had the swimming and running background at a high level. She was able to compete in both of those things collegiately. And, you know, Barb was one of the people that helped convince Gwen to come out and let's work on getting to Olympic gold. And her first outing did not go well. I think she had a mechanical in 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 that race and didn't i don't even i don't even know if she finished in her first olympics if i remember right because i was watching and i was like where's where did gwen go um and then they didn't really talk about it and then going on to to win the last one um so but but that also speaks to like if you know any of the number of other athletes that barb recruited katie zafiris um taylor spivy um i, I can't remember if taylor nib was recruited by her or not but a number of especially on the women's side um have had success in in part just this very small piece of the development pipeline identifies so those people all right you are so right jesse so and and this is again the, there's historical context here so you know the early days of triathlon um all of us are individual mavericks right you know right. we we 
we gravitate to pockets where we would train with other triathletes. So in my day, uh, it was San Diego and Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and you would train with informal groups there. And, you know, somebody would go, oh, yeah, I'm swimming masters at, at U of T. Um, can I get in there and jump in the pool? So there's five or six of us, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the American early dominance of triathlon soon disappeared in the early 90s with, uh, you know, the onset of the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And so the Europeans had that pipeline recruitment model. It wasn't a collegiate system, but it was a triathlon club model in most of the major countries and cities mm -hmm. in Europe. And so, you know, um, the Luke Van Leerdes of the world back in those days came from massive triathlon clubs in their area with, you know, five, 600, 700 members that had a youth program, that had an elite program, that leveraged their size to get great product opportunities for all the members. And that's where all these triathletes came out of. That's where the Jurgen Zaks came out of. That's where all of those people came out of. Um, and so, you know, lo and behold, you know, American and Canadian triathlon looks at this and says, holy crap, how are we ever going to compete? Mm -hmm. And your answer is the pathway that you do so well in the United States with all sport is let's have a collegiate program. Right. Let's, let's drive that into the, into the collegiate zeitgeist. And, and lo and behold, you're starting to come back, become dominant again. Um, in both, both, uh, Olympic distance ITU racing, and also mm -hmm. at the 70.3 and Ironman. And so that pipeline is, is so important. We don't have that in Canada. Uh, we don't have a, a robust collegiate system in the same way that you do. And so we struggle, we struggle here financially to develop programs. We traded away all of our, uh, potential off of Simon Whitfield uh, very badly at the national, the NSO national sports organization level. Um, and we were able to work on that probably for about eight years and then it, our advantage just disappeared. Um, but you guys have that, um, you know, I love watching the women's races now, the IT women's races and seeing, seeing the Americans do so well, you know, and, and have been doing so well for so long. And I love that, that, um, that they've, they've been able to take some of that dominance back, but you're absolutely right. That pipeline so crucial. I was thinking about that in part because I worked so hard to be as good as I could be. And I didn't quite make it to be a pro as despite my best efforts, I got real damn close, but I just, couldn't quite quite get over the hump and uh i think about it because i don't know how many people i've seen with more talent than me come and go and be like eh, i don't really like it and whether it's running or triathlon or whatever yeah. and i'm just like are you kidding me right now like <laughs> like if i had your legs i could be so fast and but that's i mean but that's where the the pipeline comes in right it's like finding those people that that have the talent and then that also like me want to do it and giving them the resources to develop them to their full potential. Yeah. And, and then it's like, then magically it's like, Oh, now we have all these people and it's the field stacks so deep. And like, you know, like we have the U S women, not unusual to see sometimes a, a swept podium where you've got all three of them. It just, and that is in large part, because well we've taken a two a two-prong attack we're like working on uh incorporating triathlon into the collegiate system through women's sports um mm -hmm. with title nine it's it's almost impossible to do it with men's sports because of the cost of football but um so that but then also like what barb was working on and i think it's joe malloy now that is in charge of the program but i, I could be wrong um 
what Barb was doing in, in the program does is finds people who are single sport athletes, runners or swimmers and teaches them how to do the rest of it. All right. <laughs> and so it's, you know, and Barb talks about it's, it's the swimmers are usually quicker to get their professional license because it's easier to teach them how to run than it is to teach yeah. runners how to swim. Yeah. But once the runners get it, then everybody's on an even playing field and like, you know, it's, it can be a, a big thing um, for the runners to have those legs at the end and know they can put it down. So that, that plays into it, but that's, good. Um, that's a good point. And I would ask you this, Jesse, like sure. the other thing that I think has changed and maybe you disagree. I think, you know, certainly um, at the age group level and even at the pro level, um, triathletes come to triathlon as triathletes now. So, you know, right. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and maybe you, you, you don't agree with that, but I think you see more triathletes, pro triathletes who are triathletes. They mm -hmm. came out of a kid's program. Right. Um, Hunter Kemper and, comes to mind. Right. Exactly. In my day, we came from somewhere else, you yes. know, yep. and, and the common pathway was, um, was, you know, national level, collegiate level swimmers who would make that transition. You're absolutely right. You can teach somebody to ride and run. It's very difficult to teach somebody how to swim. Um, or they came from, you know, high level cat one bike racing and they're like, I'm going to try triathlon. Yeah. Um, or they, you know, the other sort of more common one after swimming was, you know, you had great runners gravitating to the sport. And for the same reason that triathlon really started was, you know, I'm a national level runner, I'm injured and I can't put in the volume to run at that, uh, at that level anymore. So I take up triathlon, right. Yeah. And, you know, the motors there, the engines there. Um, so I ride a bike, it takes me a couple of years to get good on the bike and yeah, I'll learn how to swim, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, I love that idea that, you know, we're building triathletes, right. Mm -hmm. From the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. Um, just because I don't, I don't know that it's always, it is multi-sport so that, I mean, that's good, but like in some sense, it's all, it's also kind of nice when people come from those diverse backgrounds. I have a friend who uh, he was almost, well, he did, he, did, he played in one of the minor, minor professional leagues in soccer here in the US, um, but he couldn't quite, at least at the time, he didn't feel like he was gonna be able to move up to play in MLS. Right. Um, and so he came to triathlon to try to pursue a you know professional career there and uh, ended up just injury issues but it's kind of interesting to see people come from different sports and have those different skills and then be successful that didn't grow up as triathletes and i think that's the case in a lot of different sports that, that having these like multi-sport backgrounds so triathlon's its own animal because it is multi-sport so maybe it's the exception to the rule because I, I like to say that, you know, like I just did a video on how to get your kids into running and basically I say don't. Um, <laughs> just because don't like, do it. well, just do whatever your kids want to do. Like if, if they want to play soccer or really like don't, don't make yeah. them specialize, like make, let right. them do whatever they want to do. I agree. Because when I talk to these Olympians and I talk to former pros, it's like the uh, underlying current is yeah, we did all kinds of things. We learned all these different skills. And so I think there's a lot of value in that. But um, Ian, we're starting to run short on time. Yeah. So I got to I gotta ask you the question. I'm, I'm asking everybody this year <laughs> okay. before we run out of the question. And um, 
that question is how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Oh, well, so, you know, whether you're a recreational athlete or a pro athlete, uh, I think in any sport, you have to become incredibly good at being a loser. And I think um, that's the most important uh, ingredient. And I will always throw this back because I'm an avid golfer as well. I'll throw it back to, you know, Tiger Woods's heydays. You know, the perception is he's winning every golf term he enters. No, he's a solid loser. And I think uh, even in the face of that kind of success, and I think, um, you, you know, again, whether you're a, a recreational age group triathlete or a pro, you need to be, uh, at the end of the day, comfortable with the fact that you are not always going to achieve your goal. You're not going to win. Um, and the fun of this is in trying to get there. And, you know, if you've done this long enough, um, and I still show up at races and race badly uh, at 56 years of age, um, if you keep trying, it's amazing sometimes how uh, one week is vastly different than the, than the next week and the week after that. So I think you have to be ultimately hopeful and you have to be resilient and you have to understand that if this was easy and you were going to achieve your goal every time, it wouldn't be worth doing. Why, why would you show up and do it? Oh, I just nailed a, a, a PB. That's great. I, uh, you know, I uh, just won my age group 14 times and it was no, no effort at all. What's the fun there, right? I think the fun is in losing, um, being beaten, being beaten by yourself as well and, and learning from that. So I think great athletes are incredibly awesome losers. They may not show that on the outside all the time, but, but subconsciously inside their DNA, they're built to be able to be resilient against loss and to be able to be creative in the face of adversity to, to change that story. And that applies to all of us, whether you're running a one, you know, your first 10 K in an hour and a half or an hour. Um, and your goal was maybe to do it in 55 minutes. Well, you get out of bed the next day, you do your training and you show up and you try again. That's what you do. Ian, um, much like me, you're not huge on social media, but is there any place people can get in touch with you, see what's going on with run Ottawa, any of that yeah. kind of stuff? best thing they can do is is find run ottawa on instagram you can go to our website at runottawa.ca um and uh yeah i'd love for people to know less about me and more about what we do and i think that would be super <laughs> awesome <laughs> sounds good thanks for hanging out with me today Ian. jesse thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure